When the university's Institute for Smart and Healthy Cities launched in January of 2021, it marked the start of a multi-college effort to advance the development of the urban environment through collaborations across the architecture, design, engineering, medicine, and health sciences disciplines. The College of Architecture and the Built Environment, or CABE, the College of Population Health, and the Canbar College of Design, Engineering, and Commerce teamed up in this effort, which serves as a tangible impact of the merger between then-Philadelphia University and Jefferson. The team hopes to become a world-renowned leader in developing smart and healthy cities in the face of climate change, social inequity, rapid urbanization, and health disparity. This April, the Institute announced the first round of the Smart and Healthy Cities Fellowship Grants. Those represent single-year seed funding to support transdisciplinary research with a focus on quality of life in urban settings. In this episode of the Nexus Podcast, we take a look at what the Institute has been doing and what it hopes to accomplish from here. We spoke with Institute leadership, as well as several grant recipients, to discuss the unique nature of such a collaboration. Professor of Architecture, Dr. Edgar Stotch serves as the Institute's director. He noted that collaborations existed even before the merger, but the past five years have served to solidify such pursuits. The merger opened up a tremendous opportunities for researchers and faculty and students to really dive into a much more solid and substantial collaboration. I certainly appreciate the opportunities now to collaborate with experts in the medical field, in population health, in occupational therapy, and in many other disciplines, really to focus on population health or the health of the individual in urban settings in our cities. Give me a time frame on when the idea first started germinating and when it was officially started. The initial sort of napkin drawn up how the institute should be formed and who should be involved. It's about three years ago. It took about a year to fine tune all the aspects the university required to form an institute, but also and also talk to the individuals who also co-direct the institute. The institute then got formally accepted and we are in operation for about a year and a half now. What has been happening with the institute thus far? A lot. It's really exciting to really look backwards and the progress we made. Building out the framework, how to operate the institute in terms of a focal point, aim, the collaboration internally and externally. We submitted several grant proposals through external funding agencies. We published and will publish several proposals dealing with population health aspects in relationship to the built environment. We have two PhD candidates right now working with the Institute, focusing on research related questions in the arena of the individual or population health, environmental aspects and in the built environment. We're running our Smart and Healthy City International Symposium. This year, we will do this a fourth time. That is a really important outlet for us to disseminate information and knowledge across our peers and from Jefferson University, but also as well from other institutions. We're inviting private sector and the public sector. We, we do have a brown bag lunch once a month. We invite uh, scholars uh, talking about aspects related, again, to population health and, and the built environment. 
Dr. Stotch noted that the first round of grants marks a wonderful moment for the Institute's progress moving forward. He said that the recipients can now take a deeper dive into issues, including the negative effects of climate change and the dynamics of heat islands. This is a game changer for the Institute. We have now about 25 faculty and researchers across the campus working on these five grants and research topics. They will stick around as fellows in the Institute to help the next generation researchers, PhD candidates and students to conduct research in a, in a multidisciplinary fashion. How difficult would it be to accomplish these sorts of projects at other universities? That is a fantastic question. The Thomas Jefferson University is in a poor position for that kind of interdisciplinary research because we have a very large footprint in the health sector. So with our expertise and in health, 18 hospitals, a lot of clinical staff and researchers in combination with design disciplines, the social sciences and design, we are very unique. There are a lot of institutions who do a very fine work in in terms of research, but they don't necessarily have the sort of very wide footing. I'm really excited, for example, to, to talk to neuroscientists to explore the effects of climate change on our, our nerve system. These are all aspects you can't necessarily pull off in institutions which do not have a large hospital system in, in the back backdrop. He noted that the support can help establish data to pinpoint health issues in specific neighborhoods thus bolstering population health efforts. We do send that data to make adjustments in planning and just to discover relationships between the health status of population and the environmental aspects like heat island effects, green infrastructure, bike paths, walkability. As Dr. Stotch mentioned, population health is an important aspect of the collaboration. Before we get into the grant recipients, Let's hear a little bit more about why that is. I am Katie DeSantis. I am an associate professor at the College of Population Health at Thomas Jefferson University. And I am associate director at the Institute for Smart and Healthy Cities. How did you get involved? I am a public health researcher that focuses on food environments. And when we think about food environments, it's a lot to do with our built environment. A lot of my work is interdisciplinary, thinking about the marketing environment that we're surrounded by in terms of our food, as well as the public health policies that are out there that could help us make healthier choices and really make the healthy choices the easy and most affordable choices. So that research area really overlaps with this idea of creating smart and healthy cities. Dr. DeSantis noted that food access is substantially different in urban, suburban, and rural areas, with the former face not only with the issue of food deserts, but research has shown that less healthy choices are more prevalent there as well. It's not only the number of food outlets that you have access to, but really what's in them. Some of my research is focused on supermarkets. There has been more public and private partnerships to support supermarket development for communities that don't have them or food deserts. And that is, of course, a good thing in terms of food access. But when we really dig into what families buy at food stores, it's both healthy and unhealthy food. And that's really where public health 
needs to have additional interventions besides just making sure there's access to a supermarket to make sure that families know how to navigate food stores to get the healthiest products. Why would the College of Population Health be so interested in this and what do they bring to the table as a partner in the Institute? When we think about population health, the researchers and practitioners in population health really understand the importance of place. So we have been thinking about how the places we live, we work, the places that we go to school, how that all impacts our health. It's really at the core of population health to think about how place impacts our well-being, both short-term and long-term. By partnering with other experts in architecture and design and built environment, we're really able to advance the types of interventions that we might think of to incorporate a more well-rounded, sustainable, and long-lasting approach to improving the health of communities. What does the Institute speak to when it comes to the unique nature of Jefferson after the merger? There's not many institutions that have medical schools, colleges of population health, and then a design and engineering college and an architecture college. The idea that we could work together across these campuses is really exciting. It's just going to stimulate transdisciplinary work, really connecting that design and architecture side with the health side. What do you hope comes of this? I certainly hope to network across the university, learn more about what our colleagues do in other disciplines and understand how we can work together on research projects, how we can bring together these disciplines also beyond individual research projects. So how can we bring these disciplines together to work as a whole? So really being a place where we can bring together different but very related disciplines and really advance the health of cities and their strategy to make sure that they're focused on planning that will make their residents and the people who come to work and play in their cities to be healthier. Our disciplines all tend to look at something like city planning and see the numerous opportunities. We might see anything from installing sidewalks to making sure that staircases in buildings are visible to making sure that there's technology access across the city so that residents and people in the city have access to internet, which could lead to many health promoting behaviors. This really detailed look at city infrastructure offers a real opportunity to have a long lasting impact on the health of communities and also hopefully on more complex problems like climate change. On a granular level, the Institute has just started to hit its stride with the awarding of five grants for cross-disciplinary research. In speaking with the recipients of two of those grants, appreciation was the common theme. One of those grants is titled Urban Mobility and Population Health, Create a Smart Mobility Platform for Analyzing and Visualizing the Effects of Urban Mobility on Population Health in Center City, Philadelphia. At the helm of a project in which the team includes partners from the City Planning Commission and GenX Design and Technology are Drs. Peng Du and Mitchell Kaminsky. The former arrived at Jefferson last summer. When I arrived at Jefferson, I already knew there will be fantastic opportunities for multidisciplinary research across departments. 
So to me, as a urban designer and a scholar, we always talk about smart cities, sustainable cities, but the cities in the future really should be people-centric. So regardless what technologies are we use and how to use, the ultimate goal is to bring safe and healthy life to people, especially in the context of global urban population growth and population aging. To that end, working with health side experts is a valuable asset. It's much needed in this urban global warming and population growth and aging context. 9.4 billion people will be 60 years or older in the world in 2070, which will be 28% of the entire global population then. And also economically, for example, in the United States, healthcare costs comes about 18% of GDP in 2020. It is projected to be 44% in 2070. So we know we have to achieve carbon neutral by 2050, I think we will. So the future sustainable and smart cities really need to be people-centric. From his perspective as a family physician and population health program director, Dr. Kaminsky never envisioned himself being a co-PI on a research project looking at the impact through modeling of urban design and population counts. When Peng reached out to me, I appreciated that he has a lot of research experience already in designing models for smart cities and looking at the impact of different physical factors. What he asked me is, can you help me with articulating what the health factors are, which is all what population health is about. So I'm really excited to merge these disciplines and enhance the model that Peng is developing so that as we design cities, we can have a better idea, both qualitatively and quantitatively, on the impact it has on the people living within those cities. Where do things stand now? We're just getting started with this project. I'm looking through literature, and there are decades of evidence of how air pollution, for example, affects population, medical costs, admissions, all that sort of thing. And I'm really excited to be able to incorporate that kind of information into the model that we're developing here. What will it look like moving forward? There's a growing recognition that low-carbon urban mobility has significant health benefits. The percentage of walking, biking, or public transit trips and average daily travel distances can directly impact the population's physical activity level and exposure level to the emission and pollution, both affecting people's health. So these health benefits can further lead to the improvements in the average life expectancy and the significant economic savings in terms of medical cost. We have developed a model, a parametric urban design a workflow that can quantify the performance of urban mobility. Dr. Du explains that the particular aim of this research is to develop a fast data-driven urban mobility platform, which can predict carbon emissions while evaluating a variety of population health impacts in the built environments. It uses center city as its study area and would ideally have real-time 
simulated results accessible via websites, which would then be facilitated by augmented reality technologies. Dr. Kaminsky explains the potential impact of a project for which public-private partnerships have already been forged, as well as establishing plans to engage local communities. I think it will be powerful to have a studied and proven model to go to city governments, communities, and using the model, explain where if they decide to close certain streets to cars or if they decide to augment a public transportation line or build bike lanes or get rid of parking lots and put in green space, what the predicted impact would be on the longevity and health of the residents of that city. Another grant titled Stress Reduction in Healthcare Waiting Areas, Lingering Concerns, Reimagining Areas of Waiting in Healthcare Environments, brings experts together from interior design and physical therapy. They'll examine how best to make people comfortable in situations where the opposite is often the case. My name is Lou Hunger, and I'm associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy in the Jefferson College of Rehabilitation Sciences. And I'm also the director of global strategic initiatives for the college as well. Hi, and I'm Lisa Phillips, and I'm an associate professor in the interior design program here on the East Falls campus. Ironically, while they were defining their backgrounds and research, a landscaping crew got to work not too far from where the interview was taking place. Phillips explained that their work focuses on design pedagogy, sensory design, environmental psychology, and interior design. For his part, Dr. Hunter explained that his area of expertise is pediatric physical therapy, with an interest in exploring local and community-based efforts to make those services more readily available. We basically had seen that there were some problems with the waiting room design and that the people who are in waiting rooms experience added on stress. There's some stress that is inherent in the waiting process, and I'm sure many people are aware, even if you're waiting in line at the grocery store, there's also some stress that happens the more that you perceive injustices. So if you're waiting in a grocery store waiting line and someone cuts you in line, or you perceive that one line is moving faster than another, your stress level increases. I think we can all agree with that. And you can imagine how the stress builds even more when we're in a healthcare setting, because there's the added stress of having your health be an issue on top of that. Will you receive bad news? So this is something that I had been interested in this in environmental psychology, and we approached Lou on this. Physical therapists are, I think, fantastic collaborators. They are very interested in people as much as interior designers and care very much about the environment. When Lisa came to me about submitting a grant, I think what connected us in terms of wellness and physical therapists are involved in health promotion, prevention, and wellness. And that's one of our areas of focus. Dr. Hunter says that the grant offered a unique opportunity to bring a different perspective into his physical therapy world and vice versa. This became starkly clear as the team toured waiting rooms at Jefferson Health facilities looking for ideas and suggestions to soften the stressful environments. We ended up visiting a couple of waiting areas that had public access. We did explain to a couple of people, like, why are we standing there? We just said what our grant was and what our study was briefly. But people really wanted to start speaking with us about what it is in those waiting areas and the different areas on Center City campus they would like to see in terms of changes or what factors really are interested in from just working in the daily environment there. 
that they could see changes. For this particular grant, access is key. I sure couldn't have gotten in there as an interior design faculty member at Philadelphia University on my own. It just would not have happened. They also spoke about how their unique collaboration came together. Its formation is really to help unite people because I don't know people on the Center City campus very well and they brought us together. I basically said, I need someone who'd be a collaborative partner. It's like a matchmaker, right? And and, wonderful. And I had just had a meeting for some international work with Edgar and Todd. Because of that meeting on totally unrelated collaborations, Edgar provided my name to Lisa because of the grant that she was starting and working on. So it just happened in a sequence that you just really can't plan for. But it was the way that when Center City and East Falls come together, it just expands on people's expertise areas that you think that you could collaborate on but you're not sure about and would they work it just gives you that opportunity to have conversations and discussions and explore and part of our study i knew i needed help with was i wanted to uh, measure biometrics so measure blood pressure measure heart rate and that's out of my depth i'm not even going to try to do that so i needed someone who could do it He's the yin to my yang in this. We're, we're like left brain, right brain going through this. And it's fantastic. It's a really good kind of collaboration. What is the timeline on this moving forward? We have a year yeah. to for the, grant. for the grant. But this first grant includes for us to do a study of the existing conditions with patients and with staff to do surveys and to evaluate what's occurring currently. And then for us to figure out the best way to move forward from there in terms of what what do people want? What are they happy with? What are they not happy with? What's bringing them stress? And then we're going to do a virtual reality simulation of what we've collected as the best practices and test them in a virtual reality environment with patients. From that, find out again what are the best scoring in that range, in, in that study. And then those will be part of future grants then those will be slowly installed one at a time to test those in those waiting areas so that we can see which are producing the best reduced stress levels. Would this have been possible prior to the merger? It was interesting that when we merged, there was, because of the nature of different professions and disciplines, people knew of each other, even though we didn't officially merge. But I think those initial connections that people had prior to the merger were a great foundation for when we did merge and then we did need to, wanted to find people, it made it easier. We wouldn't have, I think, been able to find each other, understand our interests, understand this grant. I think that they have a really good idea of who matches up with people and they're being really smart about their matchups. And that's really exciting for us. This leads us to another question that we had for Edgar Stutch. What would you like the Institute to look like in five years or in 10 years? Our self-set goal is to become within the next three to five years, a known entity in the U.S. and a thought leader. It's an ambitious plan. There are big universities and institutions also focusing on smart and healthy cities. But again, talking about our unique situation to a very large healthcare system and and have access to population health data and and dissemination opportunities, hopefully will get us to the next level as a a nationally and hopefully internationally recognized institution. Is there anything I haven't asked about that's important for listeners to know? So the, the question could be raised why 
are smart cities such an important aspect these days? It's a kind of a new paradigm in urban planning. As an architect for a long time, I was focusing on building performances and infrastructure and these, these kind of things. But the real focal point really became the human within the city, the individual and the population who lives, works and plays in cities. And therefore, the concept of smart and healthy cities is, is really important. And it will shape and change how cities function. Aspects like air pollution, heat island effects in cities, climate change, but also green infrastructure, repurposing obsolete infrastructure to generate green corridors, bike lanes, pedestrian zones. All these things that play a major role in making our cities smarter. And if we're looking a little bit further away, you see already cities developing towards that goal. Singapore, Stockholm, many cities in Europe, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, they became much more pedestrian friendly, much more cleaner in terms of air pollution. And they're working much harder to really build an infrastructure within the city where people can be happy, healthy, and enjoy really being in a city. He believes that Philadelphia, since it is an older city in the context of American cities, has challenges to meet these goals, but also that people are already working in that direction. I think the city is doing a good job to, to walk towards that goal. But again, I think there are many aspects we can tackle to, to increase the health and the safety and, and enjoyability of our cities. To learn more about this and other Jefferson stories, please visit jefferson.edu backslash the nexus. Today's interview was conducted by Brian Hickey with production support from Dan Bernstein. Thank you for listening.